And any children here, kindergarten to second grade, any kids here, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. And for those of you who are not going to children's church, if you could open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Last book of the Bible, chapter 5. As we continue our study of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, really, 4 and 5 together are one vision, even though we've broken them up into two parts. Sort of one continuous story. So we're picking up partway through after studying chapter 4 last Sunday. But let me read chapter 5 here. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, last Sunday we studied chapter 4, if if you were here, this sort of uh, incredible vision of chapter 4 of God on His throne. Chapter 4 was like looking through a little keyhole into heaven. And it was one of those rare passages where we saw God in all of His glory with, with the angels surrounding Him in worship. And they were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it was just an incredible passage of Scripture that lifted us up perhaps to the highest possible height. But just when you think it can't get any bigger, just when you think it can't be any more grand, you come to chapter 5. And it it gets kicked up yet another notch just when you thought it wasn't possible. Um, Chapter 4 is like Thanksgiving dinner. And chapter 5 is like the dessert table after Thanksgiving dinner. You're stuffed, you're bloated, you can't eat another bite. But then there's chapter 5, and it's just even more amazing. It's bigger worship, more glorious. Because you see, there's something missing in chapter 4. As grand as it is, there's something missing that's supposed to be there. Chapter 4 is this wonderful image of God on His throne with the angels and the worship in heaven. But what is missing in chapter 4? Jesus is missing. He's not there. Where is He? And so chapter 4 just kind of cries out for Christ. Where is Jesus? And that's what we come to in chapter 5, which, again, as I point out, is one vision. You, you know, when the, when the Bible was originally written, it didn't come in chapters and verses. Those were added later. So our chapters and verses are kind of a later addition. 
so the chapters, so the numbers aren't inspired, okay? It's just the words. Uh, and so the chapter 4 and 5, even though it looks like two different chapters in our Bibles, it's actually one vision. And it all goes together as one cohesive literary unit. And so the story goes on now. Now we want to see the coming of Jesus into this picture as the worship increases to an unforeseen, uh, as yet to be seen level of greater worship and praise of Him. But before we get to Jesus, there's this matter, as we just read in verses 1-4, to of this little scroll. And the scroll is kind of what transitions us from the vision of God the Father on His throne to the entrance of Christ into the picture. So the scroll is kind of the, sort of the drum roll that sort of brings us to the coming of Jesus. So we've got to deal with this scroll, which will then set up Jesus' entrance into the story. So look back at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel uh, proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So what's up with this scroll? You know, the, it's like we look through the keyhole of heaven, we've seen this huge scene, but now the camera zooms and the camera focuses in on not just the throne of God, but maybe like the right hand armrest of the throne. And there on, in his right hand, on the right hand side, is this scroll. It has seven seals. So you've got to imagine sort of like was common in those days, a rolled up either piece of parchment or lambskin or whatever it was made of. But it was rolled up and it would have these wax seals all the way down it. And it's sitting in his right hand. And, and, and then this angel has this big public service announcement to the whole universe. <clears throat> you know, hear ye, hear ye. Uh, can anyone come here and open this? Anyone? Anyone? No. You know, just crickets. That's all you hear. There's nobody standing up with the clout, the credibility, the authority, or the right to open this. There is no president or prime minister who has the authority to open it. There is no pastor or priest or pope who can open it. No one is worthy. And so it just sits there. And then there's John's response. He weeps because the scroll can't be opened. I mean, it's just very strange. So you're like, why is he crying? And why can't anyone open it? And why is the fact that no one can open it Make him so sad. You know, what? And I suppose all of it hinges on one question, which is, what's in the scroll? Because obviously, whatever is in the scroll is generating everything else that takes place in this scene. Well, let me tell you what I think the scroll is, and then let me sort of backtrack and take you to this, the scriptures that I think it, where this idea comes from. What I think the scroll is, is it's a... It's a summary of God's plans and purposes for his end times kingdom in which he will save his people and judge his enemies. So it's kind of like God's blueprint. It's his executive order that when opened and put into motion will set into motion the end times, the final phase of God's plan for human history. And during this final phase, he will save his people from their sins and reconcile them to himself and he will finally set what is in right, what is wrong with this whole world. And he will judge evil and, and it will all be settled. And what we all understand to be broken and fundamentally wrong with this world will be sort of forever set right as his kingdom comes. And, and I believe that scroll is kind of the executive order to launch all of God's plans, which have been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. So this Old Testament hope for God's kingdom in the latter days and the end times is finally sort of bound up and symbolized by that scroll. Now, where do I get that? Well, I think the scroll is an allusion back to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. So put a bookmark here and go back to Daniel, chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 888. That sounds kind of like a revelation-y page number, doesn't it? 888. It just... Seems like it should be in Revelation somewhere. Daniel chapter 12. Now just a little background, maybe you're unfamiliar with Daniel. Daniel's an Old Testament prophet about um, 500 and change years before the time of Jesus. He's living in exile. The people of Israel have been conquered by the Babylonians. And Daniel receives a series of visions and dreams in which God promises that in the end times He is going to 
bring his kingdom, judge God's enemies, and save God's people. That the Son of Man will come and do all of this. Now this would have been hugely encouraging to Daniel because he's there with the Israelites living under the bondage of the Babylonians. And so here's this message. Hey, hey, don't worry, Daniel. God's kingdom is going to finally triumph in the end. God's will will be accomplished. And so if you look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, here's just a little smattering of the kinds of things you read in Daniel about this future salvation and judgment of God. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting uh, shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, you know, just a little taste of the kind of hopes that, of God's kingdom coming. I don't have time to kind of pull apart those verses as much as I'm tempted to. I just need to resist that urge and keep this moving here. But if you look at verse 4, here, now this is the illusion. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Isn't that interesting? Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. So I've shown you all kinds of things that are going to happen in the future, but Daniel, right now I want you to seal it up and, and roll it up and seal it. Don't look at it. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the book of Daniel that we have in front of us was sealed, rolled up and sealed so we can't read it? Well, obviously not because we're reading it. So, so what does it mean? I, I believe what it means is that, hey Daniel, what you saw about what God's kingdom is going to be, it's not time for it yet. So it's not time to execute that plan. So in a sense, roll up that plan and seal it. And when the time comes, boom, it's going to be set into motion. But not right now. It's kind of like when you, uh, you know, do a will. You go to the will, you have it notarized, you have it signed, the lawyer draws it up, and then once you have your will, what do you do? You seal it, you put it in the safe deposit box. And when the time comes, in which case when someone dies, you, the person who has the authority and the executor has the key, they open the box, they take out the will, and then the will is executed and set in motion. So, so I think that's the idea here. And in fact, if you look down at verse 9, um, look what the angel says. He replied, Go your way, Daniel. Just go live your life. You're done. You've served me. Now go your way. Because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. So the sealed scroll, I think what that means is that it's God's plans sort of potentially ready to be executed, but not underway yet. So now if you go back then to Daniel or to Revelation chapter 5, I think it just sort of makes sense more now what we're seeing here. So here's the scroll. This is God's divine plan for bringing His kingdom into this sinful and broken world. And now we understand why no one's worthy to break the scroll. Because this is God's plan. This is not our plan. This is not something we can bring about through our human ingenuity, efforts, planning, strategy, philosophy. This is something God has to do from above to to break into this world. Uh, we can't fix what's wrong with the world. Not that we haven't tried. <laughs> you know, for millennia there have been philosophers and thinkers and people who've had utopian visions, who, who like us see what's wrong with the world and they say we've got to be able to fix this. And so they've tried. You know, way back from Plato's Republic to Marx. You know, from I even think of the Puritans here in Boston. You know, with, with their vision of creating a city on a hill, which I love the Puritans. But, you know, in a sense, they had this sort of little bit utopian vision for Boston, which didn't come to fruition. All the way to after World War I, the League of Nations. You know, all these ideas of how we can fix the world and make it better and plans. And, and, and they never work. I mean, they work some, but then they fall apart. And the reason they don't work is because we're the ones running it. <laughs> You know, the plans come out of us. We're the ones trying to execute the plans. But we're the problem. It's like, you know, it's like the world would be great and humanity would be great if it wasn't for people. We're, you know, we're the ones who get in our own way. We sabotage our best efforts. And so the best laid plans of mice and men, you know, that we just undercut ourselves all the time because the ultimate problem is in our hearts. 
Our, the sin within us just wrecks all of our best plans. Not only at sort of kind of a national level, but even, you know, just personally. We have plans for ourselves. I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to make a resolution. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to change. And then we end up getting in our own way. We, we raise our families and we see our children and we think, I've got to have a plan to fix these kids. Uh, so, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, this, and this. And then you just start getting one thing under control with your kids and another problem pops up over here. And you're like, oh, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you just, you never can solve what's, you know, going on. Right? And and I'm part of the problem. My parenting gets in the way. My parenting creates problems because I'm still a sinful parent. And so, you know, we can never come up with this master plan to solve our problems personally, our families, the world, and so we continue to write our own scrolls. We write manifestos and books on philosophy and self-help books and resolutions. And we write all these things down. We write our scroll. This is what's going to fix it. Never works. And so we need God's plan. We need God's solution. And God is like, I got a kingdom. And this is my plan. Who can open it? No one. Because this is a divine plan. If we touch it, it's gone. We can mess it up. Only God has the authority to execute His will. And that, I think, is why, even in this wonderful vision of heaven, John is crying like a baby. How could you cry if you're having a vision of heaven? Well, I wept and wept because no one was worthy to open the scroll. If God does not intervene in this world, it will continue in a kind of karmic death spiral. Just around and around. Over and over. Nation will rise against nation because the former nation was corrupt, but then that nation will become corrupt. And political leaders will fall, you know, get corrupted and will say, oh, we need a new candidate. and We'll vote for that one, but then that one gets corrupted. And it just doesn't go anywhere. You know? It's like trying to get traction in a car when the wheels are on black ice. You know, we're on the black ice of sin and we just can't get traction to move humanity forward. Technology is moving forward, that's great, but all technology does is amplify the problem. Amen. It, just, it makes more obvious that the problem isn't our organization or our technology, it's, it's right here inside our own hearts. And so John weeps, and, and not only do we weep just sort of for the, the human story, but as Christians we weep. Because if God's kingdom doesn't come, what is it we've been hoping for? You know? Christianity is not just sort of a self-help coping mechanism. You know, our hope is, is the kingdom of God. That's what keeps us going. That this world is not our home. That, that what's going on here is not where we belong. And so, so our hope is the kingdom of God. But if that scroll doesn't get opened, when are we going to receive the inheritance? When's the will going to be opened and the inheritance received? As the sons and daughters of God. I like how Howard Hendricks put it in his commentary on Revelation great commentary in Revelation called More Than Conquerors. And he says that if the scroll isn't opened, then there's, quote, no protection of God's children in the hours of bitter trial, no judgment upon a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heaven and earth, no future inheritance. I would weep too, because then I'm back to my life before Jesus. And what was that? And so, John weeps... And at times we weep, we look at our lives and we weep and we're like, I just can't figure this out. We sit in front of the TV for hours watching cable news and we just get more and more depressed. <laughs> we think, what's going to fix this mess? You know, what, what's going to fix it? And we weep. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is now heralded into the picture. Finally, the one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now notice here, he's not called Jesus in that verse. He's called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David, sort of two different titles. Uh, now, now, what's that all about? What, why is he called those names? Well, they're Old Testament references. And they're just so cool, I have to show them to you. So, if you could put a bookmark here in Revelation 5. Let's look first at Lion of Judah. 
Go back to the first book of the Bible, the book of uh, Genesis, chapter 49. This is where Lion of Judah comes from, Genesis 49. Let me just quickly place this historically for you. What we're about to read is Jacob blessing his sons. So you know the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Jacob has 12 sons. Each of those sons becomes the sort of the father of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what we have in this scene is Jacob is about to die and he's giving a kind of prophetic blessing to each of his sons. And, and you know, there are all different types of blessings. A couple of the sons, he's like, you know, you're a real schmo and uh, you got problems. And another son, he's like, you're going to do okay. Uh, but then when he gets to Judah, he has this like, Super big blessing that really, when if you go through it, maybe have some time, read all the other blessings. This one just sort of stands out over and above all the other blessings. And look what he says in Genesis 49.8. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. So he's, some, he's going to be raised up above his brothers. And then get this. You're a lion's club, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? So there's the lion of Judah imagery. But what does that mean that he's a lion? Well, look at verse 10. Get this. The scepter, that's the ruler's scepter, the king's scepter, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Wow. Wow. So out of Judah will eventually come some king to whom the nations will be in obedience. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. That's amazing. This is a messianic prophecy. 1,700 years plus or minus, give or take, before Jesus. There's this amazing prophecy and, and, and let me uh, ask you, from what tribe does Jesus come? And I'll give you one guess. <laughs> Judah, the line of the kings. And so he is the line of Judah. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy almost two millennia before about a king who would come and rule the nations. Now what about the other one, uh, the, the root of David? Look at Isaiah chapter 11, which is on page 686. 686, Isaiah chapter 11, another messianic prophecy. Genesis uh, 49 is a, a, a prophecy about the Messiah. So is Isaiah 11, page 686. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I mean, what a picture of a king. That's the guy I want running for office. (laughs) The guy who judges right and who does what's right and who sees what's wrong and with the breath of his mouth slays the wicked. I mean, wow, this is a real king. But now notice, go back to verse 1. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. I think this is the illusion. Now, who is Jesse? That's King David's father. So Isaiah talks about Jesse... Revelation talks about David, but I think they're just kind of interchangeable at this point. So, so when, when Revelation is talking about the root of David, it's the same thing as saying the root of Jesse or, and vice versa, because they're basically pointing back to that kingly line. Um, but here it says, a shoot will come out of Jesse. So imagine like a, tr- a tree that got cut down. Israel's going to get judged. They're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Then what's going to happen to all the promises for a king? And Isaiah says, don't worry, there's going to be a new shoot. You know how like, somebody cut down a tree and then a shoot will come out from the side? Don't worry, it's going to be a new one. There's going to be a king that's going to shoot up from this. We go, oh, okay, there will be a future king. But wait, Revelation didn't say that this guy is the shoot. Revelation calls him the root. 
which is the source. So is he the, the root or the shoot? Well, I think he's both. If you look at verse 10, now look what he's called. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. So is he the descendant of Jesse and David, or is he the ancestor of Jesse and David? Which one is it? And how could he be both? I mean, some of you are, are kind of into genealogies, I know. Some people really groove on that, and you know, you know that your ancestors were a pilgrim or whatever. But to those of you who do genealogy stuff, what kind of person on, on a genealogy tree with you know, the family and the descendants can be both a descendant of someone and an ancestor of someone at the same time? How does that work? <laughs> the answer is, it don't work. <laughs> Unless something supernatural is taking place. Unless someone is both the root and the, the shoot. Unless someone is both the alpha and the omega. Unless he is both God and man in a great mystery. So here it's like, again, uh, Isaiah, the 700 plus years before the coming of Jesus. We have a prophecy about a Messiah who is both the root and the descendant of David. It's like, how can this be? Well, it's Jesus, fully God and fully man, prophesied so many years before. In fact, go back to Revelation 5. Just one more thing, I'll move on here. Look at Revelation 22. Go to Revelation, the last chapter of Revelation, verse 16. Revelation 22:16. Here's what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am what? The root and the offspring of David. Amazing. So that's who he is. And he has conquered. Going back to Revelation 5. He can take the scroll. He is worthy. Who can execute God's plans but God? That's who Jesus is. And who can really connect with us as human beings and our problems in this world? That's Jesus. He's the God-man. He's the only one who can bridge this gap and be the Savior and the leader that we need. And so John hears this about the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and he looks in verse 6, I'm back in chapter 5 now, verse 6, and this is where you get what I'm going to call the great plot twist of the Gospel. The great unexpected thing that happens in the Gospel story. He says, Then I saw, verse 6, what? A lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures. So, again, I, I apologize. I always think of this in terms of movies. That's how my mind works. So, you know, he's crying, he's weeping, and then an, an elder says, don't worry, the Lion of Judah is here. The Lion of Judah. And he looks up, and there, you know, lamb. Lion, lamb. Like, what is it? And not just any lamb. It's a lamb that looked as if he had been slaughtered. Or slain here. Slaughtered. It's the basic idea. So I don't know what that means. Does that mean he had a big scar? Or there's like blood on his wool? I mean, I don't know. But it looks like a lamb that used to be dead. It's a slain lamb. And so the, the conquering person who's worthy to unleash the kingdom of God and all of its end times, judgments, and salvation is a slain lamb. And so this is the great, again, the plot twist of the Gospel. This is the thing that no one seemed to see coming, even though it's in the Old Testament, by the way. But Jesus' disciples didn't see it. The religious leaders didn't see it. Jesus would pull His disciples aside and He'd be like, look, I'm just going to tell you to this, tell this to you straight. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And they would just look at Him like, what are you talking about? They didn't get it. And no one understood it really until after it was over. Then they finally saw what had been accomplished. And so Jesus has victory. He accomplishes through His defeat. He gets the crown because He embraces the cross. He gives up His life in order for us to live. He wins victory by allowing Himself to be defeated. And you know, what an encouraging word that would have been to those believers here and that are being addressed in the book of Revelation as they're suffering for their faith, as they're going through trials. And it's like, look, we're getting beat up. We're, getting, we're losing. It's like, 
Jesus lost, and that's how he won. We, we win by being faithful to the Lord, even unto death. That's how we win the victory over this world, is be faithful to Christ at any cost. And so Jesus has won the victory. He, he was killed, he was slain, and now he's standing among the four living creatures. And I think that's important to note that he looked as if he had been slain. Past tense. So he had been slain, but apparently he's not slain anymore. How did that happen? That's his resurrection. So he was crucified, buried, raised. He ascended to God's right hand. And that's, I think that's what this scene is here. I believe Revelation 5 is sort of a picture of Jesus' entrance into heaven on the heels of his resurrection. He's coming back in. Where has he been in chapter 4 and 5? He's been saving us by his blood. And now it's, it's sort of the, the great royal re-entry back into the heavenly kingdom as Jesus re-enters and receives His glory. And risen from the dead, He is alive and He has all authority. I mean, look at the next sentence. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Now, if you're going to insist, as some people do, on taking Revelation very literally, you're going to have some weird problems on your hands. <laughs> You're going to have Jesus actually being a lamb with seven horns on its head and seven eyeballs. Right? It's a symbol. It's true symbol, but it's symbolic, figurative, visionary language. What does it mean that he has seven horns? We've got to ask, what does a horn symbolize? And both in Revelation and the Old Testament, horns symbolize strength, you know, bulls with their horns. They symbolize power, and especially kingdoms and sort of political power. And Jesus has seven, which we've studied this number before. It's a symbol in Revelation, meaning completeness and totality. So I think it's just a way of saying he has all the power. You know, it's like when Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, make disciples of all nations. If he were to say that same thing in Revelation 5 language, he would say, look at me, i got seven horns. So go and make disciples of all nations. Don't worry, look at, count, look at all the horns. You know? i got all the power. That's what, that's what it symbolizes. And he's got seven eyes. You know, what's that? Well, it's again a symbol. In this case, fortunately, I love it. He tells us what it means. <laughs> the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, you know, in, in a, the omniscience of God, in a totality of his omniscience. So again, it's another way of saying Jesus is God because he has the Holy Spirit, he, He's one with the Spirit and the Father. And so there's Jesus. He gets the scroll. He has the throne. He's raised from the dead. He goes to heaven. He's seated. And now He can begin opening the scroll and unleashing God's end times kingdom. And that's what Jesus did when He rose from the dead. That was the beginning of the end. And now we are in the end times. You know, I think one of the common mistakes made about studying the end times is that people think of the end times as exclusively the last little bit of history right before Jesus comes. Uh, but that's really a, sort of a flatly unbiblical way of understanding the end times. The end times in the New Testament starts with Jesus and goes until he comes again. So people ask me, Pastor, do you think we're in the end times? I always say, yes! <laughs> Have been for 2,000 years. It's, it's flowing. And will it crescendo before the end? Yes, but... But we're in this, this final phase. What a privilege to be in this period of history. You know, the Old Testament prophets, they kind of looked at it from afar and they had little things and visions and it, glimpses and sometimes they didn't understand it and they wanted to understand it and God's like, seal it up. You're not going to get it. Just, you know, seal it. But now we're living in the flow of the end times where, where God's purposes are being fulfilled before our eyes sort of culminating in the second coming of Christ. God's kingdom is is unfolding. Is it complete yet? No. But it's already inaugurated and launched and sort of underway. Uh, you know, it's the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. Right? When Jesus came, that was D-Day. And when Jesus comes again, it's V-E-Day. But it's, we're moving toward the great consummation. But it's underway. And in fact, even better than that World War II analogy because the victory was already won when Jesus came the first time. And so, this is where we are in this flow. And, and what does that do? It, it just brings joy in worship. So, brothers and sisters, do not weep. Don't weep. Because the lion is the lamb 
who is slain and risen, and he's at the Father's right hand. You know, I think, again, we get so discouraged. You, you, you sit there and watch Fox or CNN or MSNBC for eight hours a day, and you go cuckoo. You know? You're just like, this world is falling apart. It, it's unraveling. What's happening? And, you know, the, yeah, they're not covering this story. That the lion is the lamb who's on his throne. And even through all the chaos of this world, we're going to study this in Revelation, that the, the kingdom of God is being established even in the midst of the chaos and even through what appears to us anyway to be chaos. But God's purposes are unfolding just as He plans and purposes. Don't get discouraged at your life, you know. We weep when we think about ourselves. We're like, what is wrong with me? I try and then I fail. And people, we've got to get our eyes off ourselves and just keep looking at the Lamb. He is who gives us our confidence and our hope. And when we look at the Lamb, instead of weeping, we'll be filled up with something else. We talked about last Sunday. We'll be filled up with worship. Weeping will give way to worship. When we start to understand who Christ is and the authority He has over this world and the confidence we have in Jesus and the fact that He's coming back, we should, we should be filled up with worship. And that's how the rest of the chapter ends. Just look at these little panels of worship. The first one's in verse 8. When he had taken it, when Jesus takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Brand new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so here's the final missing piece of the Gospel story to understand the whole Gospel. Why did Jesus die? Why did the lion become a lamb? Why was the lamb slaughtered? Why was He raised again? It was to, to save us from our sins. He purchased us from our sins. Again, the problem isn't societal structures per se, although those are a problem too. The problem is my heart. And the government can't pass any legislation to fix my heart. And my doctor doesn't yet have a therapy for my heart. God made my heart. God can fix my heart. God can put a righteous spirit within me that I can't do for myself. And so I need ultimately Christ's blood to save me. It's, it's His blood shed on the cross that rescues me and gives me the victory. There is forgiveness for our sins and reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus. You know, when I think of that, and I'm just thinking this whole thing with the lion becoming the lamb and all that. You know, I, I just couldn't not make the connection with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. With Aslan, you know the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Aslan is the great lion. He's the ruler of Narnia. He's the symbol of Jesus. And the four kids come through the wardrobe into Narnia. And one of them betrays Aslan. He betrays Narnia. This kid's name is Edmund. And Edmund uh, sort of goes over to the white witch who symbolizes Satan and he falls to her temptation, and then he becomes under her power, and because he's a traitor to, to Narnia, he deserves to die. And the witch has the power of death over him. Uh, and so finally, Aslan comes, and he makes a deal with the witch. Basically, you kill me, and the kid goes free. That's the deal. And, and so there's this horrific scene you know, in, in the book where, where Aslan surrenders himself to be killed just very calmly without putting up a fight, and they bind him and they muzzle him and they shave off his mane and they kick him and they punch him and they spit on him and belittle him. You know, just this picture of Christ and his sufferings is what it is, obviously. But then right before the, the death blow, the witch leans down to him and she says in his ear, it says, in a quivering voice, she said, and now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. But what she didn't know and what the Lord of this world didn't know, Satan, is that Jesus would rise. And that through that death, where it seemed like all was lost and the power of darkness was supreme, was the very moment of triumph. Because Jesus was dying for our sins and He rose again. 
Jesus died. He, he went down and there was a ten count. Except the count went backwards. <laughs> ten, nine, eight. And then He rose on Sunday. And, and the whole plan was put into motion and you have the victory. And, and so Jesus is worthy because He came to save me. I'm that traitorous Edmund for whom Jesus died. And so we have hope of the end time salvation precisely because of the cross of Christ. This is what it's all about. And so we worship Him like these people. You are worthy, they say, to take the scroll. You've purchased men from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's going on right now as we speak. This end times promise of the ingathering of the nations to God is happening right now as missionaries are out there right now. As people are coming to Jesus, a a village here, a witch doctor there, a party leader over here, a, a soldier here, all different countries around the world, one by one, God is gathering His elect. He's saving and purchasing and buying back a people for Himself. And He's going to make us to be a kingdom and priest, and we already are a kingdom and priest in Christ. But then it's bigger. Look at verse 11. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. So the angels weren't in the first chapter. They weren't in chapter 4. Now they're here. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven. So now there's like an, an additional choir around that. Composed of every creature. You know, there's sort of like a Narnia kind of scene with all the animals talking, right? There's horses yelling and there's moths screaming and there's fish jumping out of the water screaming and the whole creation is erupting, right? And all of them singing, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Boy, it strikes me that heaven is a very loud place. (laughs) We think of heaven as this really boring place where there's always a fog machine on somewhere. (laughs) And there's always sort of harp elevator music piped in. And people just walk around looking very kind of smug and bored. But you're like, what do you do? And that's our vision of heaven, this sort of unbiblical vision of this boring elevator filled with smoke, you know? Like, no, no, no. You've got to think of heaven more like... It's, I think it sounds a lot more like a Metallica concert, okay? <laughs> not the lyrics, not the lyrics. But the volume level. The pyrotechnics. The jumping and roaring and, and just reckless abandon. But instead of worshipping evil and violence and despair, it's worshipping life in Christ, but with that same energy and that same abandoned worshiping Him for who He is. It's a very noisy, exciting, wonderful place as people just give themselves to the Lord, heart and soul, with with ever-increasing energy and delight as Jesus is worshipped. And this is one of those passages that just baffles me as to why anyone would say the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? He's worshipped. He's, he's on the throne receiving the very worship that the Father receives. If you're not God, then who are you? He's, he's God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. It's a great mystery. But Jesus is worshipped. And so, brothers and sisters, stop weeping. Look at the Lamb. Stop weeping. Worship the Lamb. That's the takeaway from this passage. Just look at Him. And, and let your mind, just as he's in the center and all these choirs around him, let your thinking be reorganized so again so that he's at the center and your life is rotating around him. Stop weeping. Worship the Lamb. I'll close with this story. I uh, was talking to one of our elders who last Sunday wasn't here. He was actually preaching at a church down in Rhode Island. I, there's a pastor I know there who needed someone to pulpit supply and our guys, our preaching team couldn't do it. And I said, hey, i got an elder. i got several elders who can preach. Can I send a, a, an elder down to you? And so we had one of our elders go down, and he preached a sermon there. And after the sermon, there was a student there. I don't know if she goes to Brown or uh, Johnson Wells or whatever, but she came up um, to, the, to our elder after the sermon. And she said, you know, I, I really wasn't listening to your sermon 
which is always nice as a preacher. But <laughs> always encouraging when someone's like, I really wasn't listening to you. She says, but, but then as you got going, I eventually started paying attention. And she says, and I'm really, was really struck by some things you had to say. And she said, you know, here's my problem. She says, I'm, she's Chinese. She says, I'm from China and a student here. She says, and I'm Buddhist. My family's Buddhist. That's part of our tradition of who we are. But I'm intrigued with Christianity, which is why I'm here in your church or in this church. But, but she says, I, I, don't, I don't really see why I need to adopt Christianity. She says, because Buddhism, uh, well, this is her take on it anyway. She says, Buddhism basically teaches to be a good person. And she says, so my, me and my family, were trying to be good people. And Christianity seems to teach to be a good person. And so what's, what's the big deal? Whether you're Buddhist or Christian, the important thing is to be a good person. And uh, our elder, he just, God, I think, gave him wisdom to respond. I mean, what would you say? So, so, she, so anyway, he had words to respond. He said, uh, he said you know, I, he said, first of all, I'm not surprised that your religion teaches you to be good because the Creator God has put morality in all of our hearts. And so we all have a sense of what's right and wrong, which, by the way, is an evidence that there is a God. The fact that everyone has an innate sense that there is a right and wrong. And why would we have that? So, so we all have this sense within us. And, and so, so lots of religions, philosophies, even atheists have standards of behavior of what's right and wrong in most cases because it's innate in us. He says, so I'm not surprised it's there. He said the difference, though, is that all of the, the world religions and philosophies are about trying to be a good person and, and sort of work your way up by showing that you're a good person and improving yourself. And he's like, the problem is we can't find God that way because we're not good enough. We're sinners. Again, we can't build it from the ground up. We can't write our own scroll. We can't improve ourselves because we're the problem. You know, it's, it's, it's broken from the beginning. He said, but what Christianity is about is about God coming down from heaven to do something for us. It, you know, it's like we just talked about. It's Aslan dying for Edmund. It's Christ dying for us. It's the kingdom of God that comes from heaven on down that, that God has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And, he, and then he just told her the gospel. He said, you know, Jesus came. He lived among us. He was crucified to pay for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And now we can have forgiveness and we can be reconciled to God by just receiving what God has done for us rather than doing it for ourselves. And, and he said, you know, as, as he talked, this woman just seemed softened as she was listening, hearing the gospel. Um, so I, a couple of just quick takeaways from that. One, I'm just so thankful that we have that caliber of elder leading our church. Um, and it's a privilege to work with people like that. Secondly, I think that's just a good reminder for us as Christians when we talk about the Lord that all we really need to do is just keep pointing up to Jesus. I think, you know, you know what would you say if someone hit you with that question about Buddhism or Christianity? I think sometimes we, we get all flustered. We're like, oh, well, uh, uh, and we think we have to, like, get into a fencing match where we prove that this religion is better than that religion. Or, you know, we have to defend American foreign policy versus Chinese foreign policy or socialism versus capitalism. And we just get into all these different rabbit trails that are interesting discussions but aren't the point, you know. And, and the point is Jesus. You know, I didn't become a Christian because I was convinced by some sort of philosophical argument. I became a Christian because I met Jesus. And when I saw the Lamb, that was it. When I saw the Lamb, it was slain. So we just got to keep taking people to Jesus and just don't be tempted to sort of get down these rabbit trails. As interesting as some of those discussions may be, the Gospel is about Jesus. It's not even really about Christianity. It's about Christ who was crucified, buried, and raised and our need to repent. And then the last thought, and I really, this is really the last thought, um, just to leave with you, <laughs> is, is if, you, if you find yourself in that story more identifying with the student and feeling like, you know, why don't you just be a good person? Isn't that what it's about? I guess I would just ask a question of you. How's that trying to be a good person thing going for you? You know? I, I, it hasn't worked for me. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you think it's working for you. Maybe you should talk to someone who knows you to ask how it's going for you. <laughs> uh, I, I just find that, that even, even with God out of the picture, my own conscience convicts me about where I fall short. I just can't do what I know I should be doing. And so the message of the Gospel and of Christianity isn't, hey, try harder and shape up. It's just acknowledging that I need a Savior. That God alone can forgive my sins. That I need to come and worship the Lamb who is my Savior. And, and so what you need to do is 
is just get on your knees, acknowledge your sin, and put your faith in Jesus. And you need to do it like right now. Before you go out today. Maybe while the communion things are being passed, you need to come to God and just say, I am a sinner. I'm not good enough. My, my little scroll I've written hasn't worked. And I need you to forgive me because I'm a rebel. I'm like Edmund. I'm a traitor against you. You need to put your hope in Christ and be saved. And be saved from your sins because the time is short. Christ is coming back. You are destined for hell if you don't have Christ. Not because Christians are better than anyone else. We're just sinners. It's because Christ is the Savior with the only solution for our sins. So put your faith in Christ before it's too late. And do it because it's wonderful to know Him. And let your heart be filled up with worship as you trust in the Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just add our voices to the heavenly choir this morning to say, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that they would weep no longer and instead would worship the Lamb. Lord, we lay at your feet all of our worries and our doubts and the things we're stressed about. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness that those, we, those worries have re- replaced worship of you. And God, we pray that you'd fill us up with a greater awe. Even now, as we're about to come to communion, Lord Jesus, we just pray you'd give us a, a fresh vision of what you've done for us. And as we meditate on these elements, that Lord, even those of us who've taken communion a thousand times, might have a fresh experience of just seeing your glory on the cross. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who's asking those questions, who wonders what it's all about. I just pray, Lord, that they would see Jesus, that they would get a glimpse of Him. And so, Lord, I'm asking the same thing for everyone, including myself. Help us to see you, Jesus, now. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. What a fit.